0: I'm very happy to see you all, as always. And people that I who here, who here has never been here before, who here am I meeting for the first time? But we have to put on your response, Susan. Susan, where is Susan? Hello, Sylvia. This is this is Susan. Oh, okay. I don't see you. Are you? I don't have a a, a place to have my camera on, but I am fully present, and I so appreciate being here. Oh well, thank you very much. Where are you, Susan? I'm in Silicon, Washington. Oh, north of me. Okay. Yes. Well, thank you very, very much for coming. And uh, have it is it, it there? We are always in the same level. We are always starting today. If we starting today or. 25 years ago. So here we are, and you're right up with everybody else. So welcome. I'm glad that you're here. anybody else not ever here before? We can say hello. There is Susan. There's another Susan or the same Susan or? Another Susan. Where are you, Susan? I'm in Toronto. Oh, well, bienvenue. I'm happy that. <laughs> Merci. <laughs> I'm happy that you've come from so far. It's amazing, isn't it? It's it good. is. Is one of those things that I think is magic. There is Susan in Toronto, where it's already one o'clock in the afternoon, and she is as here as anybody else. I love that; brings tears to my eyes. Where is everybody? Anybody else is new? Irene, Irene, hi. Where are you, Irene? In Berkeley. Oh, okay. Uh, is it not as exciting maybe it's not as exciting no but <laughs> I could be at your house in 25 minutes but I'm very you're happy. welcome to come <laughs> I'm very happy that you're joining us and thank you we are ongoing this is one of the things that I think a couple of times in the last 30 years Christmas has been on a on a Wednesday. And I think that was the only time that we didn't meet. Otherwise, we have met every single Wednesday for the past umpty umpty years, from before there were buildings. So I'm happy. Anybody else never before here? Okay, but we are here, and uh, it's been it's become like ordinary in this on Zoom way of meeting to spend a few minutes in the very beginning to just arrive. Because if uh, you're like most of us, you do chores around, or you prepare yourself. And then at one minute to the hour, you probably sit down, and here you are, and you click on, and here we are, which is fine, perfect. But I find that uh, when I do that, that my mind arrives a little bit after my body. Uh, there's a, a line from James Joyce where he says... Uh, Mr. Duffy lived a short distance from his body, which always pleases me when I think about it. Over the years, that that our body arrives, I think it ought to be a rule in uh, in churches. It mostly is, I think. It's not like a written rule, but uh, all kinds of churches, synagogues, mosques, wherever ought to be a rule. Um, uh, it more or less, I think, it happens. It's correct. Per- that people come in and they sit down quietly. And then when the teachings start, they're already there. Not every place I go that's a meeting place like that. Then the activity starts and people settle down. But anyway, this uh, the idea that your mind arrives after your body has, I think, due to Heidi, now have an arriving meditation for five minutes or so. And often, when we do that, I really bring people's attention to their body and their breath in the body that's happening all the time. Because here we are. Usually, the body is here and the breath is always here. And the mind is still putting the wash in the dryer or turning on the dishwasher or something. But I'd, I'd like to see, and I'd like to suggest that for this morning, we use as the meeting meditation or the gathering meditation, one that you could equally well use in this moment as in the supermarket or in a restaurant or anyplace else where we've been doing other things and we want to be right here now. And the meditation is a, uh, a gatha, which is a saying, and you say it over and over to yourself, and uh, it's an instruction. And the instruction is, may I meet this moment fully? May I meet it as a friend? Uh, It's not new. People who've been here before know that it's one of the reminding phrases that I like very much. I like it very much because if I say to myself, I'm planning to, may I? Not asking permission. It's really... um, Somebody once told me it's the hortative subjunctive. It means may it come to pass, may it come to pass that I meet each moment now as a friend. So we sit down, and uh, in the silence, we meet our bodies, which breathe, and breathe in sync with our breath. We breathe in, and the body fills with breath. The breath goes out, the body relaxes down. And it has, from the moment you were born until now, reliably done that moment to moment so that you're still here. So, but we meet the body the moment with our body and our uh, breathing systems, our digestive systems. We meet it also with our emotional systems and uh, all the things that come with that. Maybe we're rushed today and... Maybe it's been a difficult morning. Maybe you just got up and you're rushing. Who knows? But can you be here now in this moment? May I meet this moment fully? May I meet it as a friend? I like to say it over to myself, over and over. Not feverishly, but comfortably. Every few breaths. And what it does for me is it pulls my attention into this moment, this body right now, the mood it's in, the health it's in, whether it's warm or cold or comfortable or in pain or at ease. Each moment arrives, a new moment, a new breath, A situation of the body which changes moment to moment. May I meet it as a friend means may I meet it with a certain amount of equanimity. May I not struggle with it. And really it's the mantra for a whole life. That's what we really want to be able to do in our life. May we meet our lives fully and as a friend. So I'll be quiet for five minutes. And let's do that. May I meet this moment fully. May I meet it as a friend. And then open your eyes and look at everyone who's invited you into their home. I think about that. There are about 50 people here now. And all those people have invited you into their home. So pick out somebody that you don't know. And don't even know where they are, except we know who's in Toronto and who's in Berkeley, but maybe you don't know where anybody else. Pick out somebody and just think them a good wish. I hope you have a good day. Really, imagine that you've just broadcasted that out of your heart and to them. Wherever you are, I hope you're having a good day and that your people are well. And then find another person. Maybe you know somebody. You say, oh, there's so-and-so or so-and-so. And And wish them well for today. Particularly notice how your mind and your body and your heart feel when you do that. and we have change pages so I can see somebody else. And then see if we can just look for a moment at everybody who's on the particular page that you're looking at. And may everybody here be well and have a good day. Particularly being attentive to what it feels like in your body and your mind. Remember, because I'm going to ask you, I'm going to ask who? Uh, I'm going to ask Carlita to write down. These are the questions that when we have our questions for everybody... The first question is going to be, how did you feel when we did that uh, wish everybody well in the very beginning? Because I won't forget how I felt. I'll just forget to ask the question. So Carlita is going to write that down. And we're going to make a list of questions, Carlita, because there are things I want to talk about. But I want to talk a little bit, and then we'll come back. And So this is how you feel. Okay, And I want to first of all tell you, I want to tell you two stories, because one of them happened yesterday. Yesterday morning was a, a, a Tuesday morning. I drove out of my house, and I was for whatever reason in uh, a grumbling mood. I just was. Grumbling moods arise from time to time. And it doesn't matter why, or if it they, they doesn't matter, they, they arise like everything else, and then they pass eventually. But um, I live uh, on a house that's not on a street. I have an address that's a number on the street, but it's not actually on the street. To get to my house, you have to turn up a driveway that's very poorly marked and hard to actually find. I have to give very specific instructions, and when people are coming along the street, they... Turn up into the driveway and they drive up a high driveway and pass four or five neighbors on the way up to the top. So, yesterday morning, I left my house uh, in the eight o'clock hour. So, people are going to school uh, along the street that my house address is on. And I got on, I got in my car and I drove down my driveway and I came to where my driveway meets that street and I stopped. And it's a, uh, uh, a street that goes down. All my children went to the grade school. That's two blocks from the bottom of that drive. So I come to the bottom of the drive, and I look both ways, of course, before driving out and making a right turn. And I noticed to my left, there were no cars, but there was a young boy on a bicycle coming along the street. And he was way he was far enough away that I looked and I, I got it right away that I could easily turn into the ma- that main road and start driving. Uh, but I decided to wait for him to bicycle along and come down. so he's driving along on it. He's coming along on the bicycle. I'm coming down. I come here and he's plenty far from me. I could have turned right, but I decided to wait there. And he he's pedaling along, probably nine years old, and he's pedaling along fiercely on his bike. And he pedals past me and goes on to where he's going to school. And then I carefully made my right turn onto that main thoroughfare. And I had this momentary clear thought in my mind, that boy's parents... That boy's parent, I actually thought that that boy's mother, but more proper to say that. Well, What I thought was that boy's mother uh, has just uh, asked me to take care of her child, and I did, and she's thanking me. Now, that's completely a made up, but that's exactly what I heard in my mind. That boy's mother is thanking me for being very super careful that he could make that trip. And I felt good. Here I am coming down a grumbling and I had that thought, that boy's mother is thanking you. And then I came down to the corner where that particular street meets a very wide and busy boulevard that uh, requires a crossing guard at the corner because it's one of those crossings where lots of cars are going, especially in that morning hour. And There's a crossing guard who has been there for years. He's a Little man, I, I from time to time talk about him in class because he's a little man. He's a, They're all old men, the crossing guards, except if they old women. And uh, the old car, crossing guards in his um, yellow slicker and the um, rain gear with his umbrella, it was very dear. It wasn't raining yesterday. But I come down to the corner, and he is the little crossing guard with his six-sided... Um, stop sign, stopping me pulling the traffic this way, getting everybody herded up, and then walking a group that included my boy on his bicycle across that really busy thoroughfare. And I was standing there and thinking, well, that parent is also thanking that crossing guard for huddling these 12 children, including the boy on the bike across the street. And I felt in such a good mood. And 60 seconds before I'd been driving down, rumbled up about something or other. And I was totally buoyed up. And I realized it because it was such a a dramatic change. Do you get that story? Did I tell it well enough for you to get it? That, you know, that every time that I pause and think, I'm just going to wait for that boy to go by. And every time I look at the crossing guard, who is, the world is in a awful shape. Everybody's doing everything, including purposely bombing people and purposely this people and that people, but not on my corner. Those 12, 15 children got across and went to school, and that particular boy on his bicycle got there safely, and I was part of what happened at that moment. I was part of the karma of the whole future of the boy on the bike and those 15 people Not about all these people doing it, not without being asked. It was in us to do that. So I think about the fact that you think about, uh, I'm particularly going to get around to talking about, I spent a weekend on a retreat for teachers at Spirit Rock, and the teacher who was teaching us when this happens every year, and they get a teacher usually from another tradition to teach us. So they sit on retreat. They sit, they meditate, they talk. The teacher who was teaching was Anam who's who uh, actually has a community in uh, Richmond, which is just over the bridge from me. And I've known him. I've known that he's there for many years. And I've never been to his community. It's probably 20 minutes from where I live, and I'm thinking I will because I was so taken by what he taught And his manner of teaching. And he very much taught about having in mind every moment. He said mindfulness is being aware moment to moment as a moment arises with what's happening and what can I do to help. That's his instructions. I love that. Every moment, not just what's happening and how I feel, but what can I do to help? Imagine if everybody, every moment Said to themselves, what's happening? And what can I do to help? What world we'd have. I'm going to talk more about Adam Kipton in a little while. I'm also going to talk about uh, there are two terms uh, in, in Pali terms as part of the traditional liturgy, where it says monks uh, talk about. Hiri and Otapa is part of the traditional teaching. And what they mean, they're, they're translated terribly as uh, moral shame and moral dread, which sounds terrible. But And what they actually mean is really understanding that every single thing that you do has repercussions. Every single thing that you do has repercussions. Some of them are small and in the sphere of a whole planet they're not that significant and some of them are very significant what if everybody taking care of all those people going to school yesterday didn't do it what if something happened to somebody it has repercussions in that person's family forever and ever and ever and ever we all know stories about somebody and we won't talk about that everybody, everything I do which is, which I'm doing with overtly thinking, may all beings be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering, or without thinking that and actually being sure that my heart is turned in the right direction, that my heart is in a caring mode. I love that he said mindfulness is more than just what's happening and how do I feel about it and have I cringed or have I seized it and did read arrive, or did aversion arrive or did um, confusion arise but what's happening do I see it clearly and what can I do to help that really just touched me so much last week my daughter called one morning and one of my daughters called and she said uh, I'm, you know, I'm really worried because I just heard the news that uh, there was this gigantic earthquake in uh, Morocco, near Marrakesh. And thousands of people are dead and missing. And I thought, wow, thousands of people. All of a sudden, from one minute to the next. It was the largest quake in, in the last hundred years in that part of the year, uh, world. And I I heard that, and I thought, Wow. And then she added, my friend, I won't use her real name because this is going to be recorded forever, let's say my friend Anne is in Marrakesh with her husband on a holiday. And all of a sudden you think, you know, and, no, and it turns out, and she said, and I texted her, but I didn't have an answer back. So later on in the day, she got an answer back, and Anne was... Not She was out of where the quake was by 50 miles. She felt it, of course, but she was safe. I realized that when she said there's a big quake in, in Marrakesh, you think, whoa. But you think, well, Marrakesh, that's a very far away from here. I don't know anybody in Marrakesh. I don't, but at that moment, I did know somebody in Marrakesh. And all of a sudden... I not only got that I really hoped that Anne and her family were alright, but that everybody who wasn't Anne, that they were alright because they had people who cared about them. There are ways in which in a moment, I really get it, that this being is the same as all beings. That in a moment, we are all connected to everyone who's in the middle of an event. When um. Uh, 9-11 happened, September 11th, which we just passed an anniversary of. It was a Tuesday, and uh, I, rem- I remember it particularly well because it was a Tuesday on which I had scheduled to uh, go to the, the hospital that's near where I live. Because one of my family, I'm going to keep this person anonymous. One of my family uh, needed to have a, um, a surgery, which turned out to be completely uncomplicated and in and out surgery and corrected a situation that remains corrected till now without any difficulty. But one of my family was needing to be in the hospital on um, on that day, on the morning of Tuesday uh, September eleventh, twenty two years ago. So I had it in my calendar and I got up in the morning, I was gonna go. And then a friend of mine called and said, Turn on the television, turn on the television. And I went and I went to the hospital because their schedule went on. And it was a a very strange experience because the in and out surgery was all in a certain part of the hospital. So And all in and out, so probably no one was, um, anyway, who knows what they were. But my person was in a certain room before and after, and I was with them and other family members. And everybody knew at that point what was happening, because everybody got up to go to the hospital for their personal medical event and heard the news. So everybody, as I walked down the hall, here's my person in this room, this person in that room, people in all the rooms. And in all the rooms, they had televisions. And in all the rooms, there were people uh, around the bed talking to the person having the surgery, whatever they were having, and, and being concerned about their person, of course, and being concerned about the person up on the... On the screens, everybody in the bed with a situation of people who love them, caring for them, is watching this horrendous situation unfold on the TV with all these thousands of people involved and all their families and all the people seeing it and knowing it. And this tremendous, really international calamity happening. And here's our personal little minor calamity happening. And I thought to myself, this is so strange. Everybody's got this, which they really hope goes well. And at the same time, they're looking at that. They whoa. And you don't feel the same as the people there, but you feel part of a caring world. I am caring here. And everybody has gotten their attention and everybody's caring at one time about what happened. And then the following day uh, was a Wednesday, just as today is a Wednesday. And I went to Spirit Rock to teach. And way more people came than normal. And I think that they needed a place to go and sit quietly. And just sit there. And uh, the first thing that we did, we sat there, we sat quietly. And the first thing that I invited people to do was to say, did you know anybody there? Did Somebody personally that you know, whether in the building or died somehow in that. There was nobody that anybody, nobody's sister or brother. But there were a lot of people who had some connection. My next door neighbor's uncle was uh, working for such and such a bank there. Or uh, people had other connections and talked about it. By somebody, I'm sure I don't remember exactly the stories, but somebody surely rose raised their hand and said, My brother in New Jersey was late for work because there was a crowd on the George Washington Bridge and he missed it. There was an article yesterday, I think, or the day before, uh, either in The Atlantic or in the New York Times. I think it's in the New York Times, and it's called something like uh, he still feels guilty after 22 years, and it's a story about the man who was the manager of Windows on the World, which was a the, I, uh, the uh, restaurant on the top floor of one of those twin towers. And I and tells a whole story about his life and how his work and what he did and how he got to be uh, the manager of that really very successful and very beautiful restaurant and that he was very meticulous about his work. And he was in his office every morning that he had an appointment in that office at nine o'clock. It was his way to be in his office prepared at eight 45. That was just what he did. He was very punctilious about his work. And on that day, he was a little detained because as he left his house, in his car to drive down uh, his uh, son came out said wait a minute dad i just missed my school bus could you just drop me off at school so he drove his child to school and then he drove in he wasn't there at 8:45 at 8:46 the plane hit the building and he was several minutes late so he didn't go in the building he tried to go in the building Nobody would let him in. Of course, they were full of firemen, policemen. And you realize how close you can be. My Anne could have been in Morocco, but having a day trip out of Marrakesh when that happened. He has a man who was always in his office at 8:45. And on that day he drove his child to school. There were all the stories of almost. And then you realize that our whole lives are almost. Did I read you that uh, poem last week about I, I was saved because it was too early because it was too late? Did I not read it? I did read it last week, didn't I? Was, uh, uh, Vilma Zimborska, I think is her name. <laughs> I can't pronounce her name unless I look at it. <laughs> it says, when you realize that you missed every single every single calamity that could have befallen you, didn't before not before you before you because here we still are and in the end when you think about it it's a miracle that we're any of us here. How many streets did we cross? how many buildings were we in that later were on fire or were we ever in one of those twin towers or were we this where we that? we were on we missed a plane I knew someone who missed a plane that the plane crashed it could have been otherwise. And the fact that this morning there are 52 of us looking at each other, it's a miracle. We all made it till now. And we don't get up in the morning and think, yay, I got up again. It's a miracle. <laughs> but we could, you know, think about it. Because it could have been otherwise, and it wasn't. And uh, thinking again about Adam Tuchman, could have got up this morning and think it's a miracle I got up. And what am I gonna do today to be helpful? Because everybody's life is depending on me. Not everybody so proximally, but everybody one breath away from this or that or that or that. And I can't I can't make sure that I never am implicated in anything bad that happens to somebody else, but to at least have the intention not to. To wake up every morning and say, okay, I'm here. I'm awake. How can I help? That would be an amazing way to start the day. How can I help? What can I do? Somebody once said to me, and I don't remember who, because I'd like to, because it's a nice thing to say. It's also a true thing to say. They said a moment of mindfulness is the same as a moment of compassion. Think about it a little bit, because... Uh we often say something like mindfulness leads to insights, leads to wisdom, and the wisdom includes knowing how precious and fragile this life is, which uh, and also leads us to see how in our um, ignorance, ignorance doesn't mean um, ignorance doesn't mean. Uh, level of education. Ignorance means not really understanding that this life is um, um, uh, how am I going to say terminal? Brief. Uh, Like everything else, it arises and passes away. It's affected by everything else in the world, present or past. And it's afflicted with vulnerability we are always vulnerable that very poem what he could have stepped into the traffic i told the i uh, well i i told a story to one of my daughters yesterday i don't remember how it came up and she said you never told me that story mom all these years i never knew that story why did you not tell me i mean I'm 87. She's been my daughter for 61 years. Mostly she knows every single thing about me. Uh, I'll tell this one more story, and then we'll get some time for us to talk to each other. Uh, I was married in 1955 in New York State. And in those days, you had to take a blood test for uh, venereal disease, I think, uh, before you could get a marriage license. So uh, in the couple of weeks before my marriage, I went to a lab to have uh, that test. And I went to a, a, a lab in a suburban area, such as we have here, that uh, there'll be a lab on City Street, and it's um, not in a big hospital building. Anyway, I went to this lab. They drew the blood. I, th- I think it may have been the first time I ever had blood drawn out of with a vena puncture out of my arm and uh, it was uh, startling to me I guess and uh, I got up from that and uh, I left the building and went out on the porch of this house on the city street and I had parked across the street from where that lab was I got my parking space and walked across the street and up the steps and into the lab and I came down out of the lab and I started to walk down the street, the steps, and I suddenly felt very dizzy. And I thought, maybe I'm dizzy because uh, they just took the blood out of me. or I don't know what I thought at that moment, but I certainly knew I was dizzy. Maybe I'd gotten frightened by it or something. So I, I said, well, I'd better sit down. And I sat down in the middle of that stairway going down. I remember sitting down. And knowing to put my head down between my knees until the blood came back, so I put my head down. And the dizziness passed. And um, maybe I sat there two minutes. And uh, the dizziness passed. And then I sat up. And I was about to stand up and go across the street to my car. And a car came careening around the corner. Like a, it seemed like a getaway car from someone because it was really careening around the corner and it was zoomed right in front of me. Where I thought to myself, "Goodness, if I had just walked down these steps, I would have been perhaps in the path of that careening car." And I thought, first of all, I thought, "Well, the angels in heaven are watching out for me." But you know, it was a sweet thought. But I don't think there are angels in heaven watching after me. I wish I thought that. But if I thought that, then no children would, no unattended children would drown in swimming pools and nobody on their bicycle would get hit and nothing bad would happen to anybody. So I don't think it was angels in heaven. I think it's because I sat down because I was dizzy and they just happened. Uh But I thought to myself, whew, Closed shave, really. And I remember thinking about that, and that is now, I was 16, uh, 71 years ago. Is it 71 years ago? Yes, I think so. But I remember, and I I remember which side of the street I was, and I thought, that could have been me. Everything could have been me, but it wasn't. And yet we don't get up in the morning and say, yay, I'm up again. That's a fabulous thing. Another day, how can I help? What can I do for other people? We could do that forever. I remember one more thing about the um, waking up in the the morning of uh, 9-11. I was looking around my living room, which was lined with books, bookcases and other things that I love, paintings that I love and uh artifacts that you know I have from my family. And uh someone had just called me and I was in my living room looking around. I said, Did you hear what happened? Oh, no, they told me what happened. And I had this momentary feeling that uh the world was gonna end and that it would all blow up. And, I I had this feeling of, look around, and my living room, which I I look at every day, and I think, oh, I have to rearrange the pillows here, or I need to dust, or I need to move the chairs, I'm too crowded in here. I think something uh, of a normal fix-up, work-a-day thought. And I looked around, and I thought, this room is so dear to me. Look at all these books that I love, and the piano that I love. And I'm never going to be, you know, it's all going to be gone. And I won't play it and see these books. And my neighbors out the window, I won't see them yet. And suddenly I had a feeling that everything was tremendously dear to me, and precious to me. And there was a word that Ajahn, well not Ajahn, Anand Suttan used throughout the weekend. He used the word devout. He said it's really about falling in love with everything. It's about falling in love with everything. And how about this or that outrage in the world? says it's about falling in love with the world and falling in love with creation. And that it's happening. Not what is happening. Because a lot of terrible, terrible things are happening. But that it's happening. I remember uh, Susan uh, Felix. Susan Felix. Who was part of this class for many, many years? Uh, used to come from Berkeley. Who died in the last several years of a long and really dreadful illness. And Susan used to uh, sign all her emails instead of, however, we sign them, "All blessings" or "I love you," or "Susan." She would sign them, "Stay amazed." Stay amazed, Susan. It was a call letter, so to speak. And I thought to myself, and I said to her many times, "I love that, Susan. Stay amazed, because if if I am amazed, if I look out and I think, look at this world, it's amazing. My deciduous trees are losing their leaves. My uh, my uh, my leaves that turn red at this time of the year are turning red." Uh, the uh, agapanthus that I never see any blooms because the, although I see tremendous foliage, because the deer eat the, fo- the blooms the minute that they appear. All of that became tremendously dear to me. And when I, if I look out in the morning with those nine eleven eyes and I look down, and I said, it's dear to be alive. Look at this. My dog who's afraid of all other dogs. And doesn't like to go for a walk as a result he's dear he's just a, 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 a poor guy that's been startled in his life everything becomes dear and, uh, and Anam Tufton was saying when you get that kind of a vision and you realize that not your life is wonderful or unproblematic but life is amazing and that you and your thoughts and your feelings and your beings are not separate from all of that. Just as the world is evolving day by day, the, the the cosmos is doing whatever it's doing day by day, your body is doing whatever it's doing day by day, and we're all doing it as part of the great becoming. Somebody in the last few weeks said to me that one of the things, one of the insights that you see from paying attention closely it's not the insights that things arise and then they pass away. Things arise, at, and what you realize is something changing as it arises. That makes it sound like it's here, like it's really here. Everything that we are part of is an evolving, changing thing. Changes ubiquitous. My, you know, that that's not. I'm not that changed from yesterday, but there are all these processes that are going on in my body a friend of mine has uh, recently been uh, found to have some condition that looks worrisome and uh, they're in the, mid- the, the, the medical people are in the middle of trying to figure out what it is and one of the things that they keep saying is well if you have this or that it's probably been happening for a long time And getting ready to manifest so we know about it. And who knows what's manifesting here? Who knows what will get up tomorrow? Who knows what what will stop it or if something will? But ultimately, this particular system of change, this body, this mind, these perceptive organs, they all are changing. And what we notice, if we notice, is the ubiquitous nature of change. Everything is changing. There's nothing we can do about it. We are in it. We're part of the change. We're not even viewing it. We are it. And I was very much impressed with having that as really the core of the teaching of uh, Um Anand that when you live in an awareness that everything is precious, not everything is... Uh, the thing that you desire but everything is precious then you 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 live thoughtfully what can i do i'm here now what can i do i can wait here until that bicycling nine year old gets way past me i can wait on the corner till that little guy with his stop sign motions me to go i can pay attention to other people's children going to school I think what's really important about that is that when I do that and I live out of that place, I feel good. I'm sure I've said to him probably many times that sometime in the last year, six months, I don't know, uh, I thought to myself as I was preparing a talk, I thought, um, you know, it's the same old talk. It's always the same talk. But it's, it, it, I, I thought to myself, I always say the same thing. But uh, then I thought, well, maybe that's true. What do I continue to say? But then I thought that there are only certain things that are true. There are not that many things to say. And I, I, so I made, a, I made an outline on one side of one piece of paper that says, what I know is absolutely true. I don't have that piece of paper with me, but it's on one piece of paper. It says, what I know that's absolutely true. And what I know for sure. And what I know for sure is that the, I am the principal beneficiary of any moment of benevolence, of any moment of benevolence that I feel. I might be thinking about so-and-so and maybe wishing, may they be peaceful, may they be happy, may my friend's illness turn out to be benign. So I am actually wishing for her. And sometimes when I am teaching about the formal practice of loving kindness, people say to me, do you think it actually works to pray for people? Does it actually work if I think about my friend and her worrisome situation? I said it absolutely works. I don't know whether it contributes in any way microscopic, hugely, directly, not directly. I don't know whether it makes any difference in the manifest world, but it works because it works on me. My heart is supported by being able in the middle of turmoil. Because he is my friend. I love her dearly. I don't want her to have a bad thing. And at the same time, I know we're all going to have bad things sooner or later unless something dramatic or accidental happens to us. But it's not about desirable things. It's about being able to say, to have enough equanimity in the mind to know I'm not in charge. Nobody's in charge. And here we are, all of us in free fall, not in charge. And I don't know if my prayers or my wishes or whatever you want to think of them contribute in any way, but slowing down on a bicycle does and waiting for the stop sign does. And keeping my mind sober does. And all the other things. And getting vaccinated does. It's only me getting vaccinated, but it's it's the same thing. Each of us who gets vaccinated holds up the world. There's one more thing that I maybe want to say, and then we'll sit a while. I know well two more things and then looking at what I had in mind here um, somewhere in the last week or two I read um and i I really went back and tried to find who had said so because I like to cite have a citation for things, and i don't I don't remember where it was, and I couldn't find it, but I read a thing that said um Neighbor is not a geographical geographic term; it's a moral imperative, and I just like that so much. You know, uh, I I did the I did some research looking up what's a neighbor. I looked at the line "Love your neighbors yourself," which is uh, somewhere in Leviticus, but it also says. Uh, where did it say? I looked it up. It says it um, it says it all through the Gospels. Uh it says it in the Gospel of Mark and the Gospel of Gospel of Luke, it says, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and all your soul, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. In the Gospel of John, it says, Jesus said, love one another as I have loved you. One of the things that um, we talked about in that teacher conference over the weekend was what do you think is the definition of Nibbana or Nirvana or however people say it? And generally people said it's the absence of afflictive emotions And I I really will come back in weeks to come and talk about that because I thought about that. How can you not have uh, afflictive emotions? I think you have to really understand that the afflictive emotions are greed, hatred, and delusion. That sadness is not an afflictive emotion. Sadness is an expression of the heart. in grief. And we are sad when people are in pain. And it's just, uh, uh, Nyanaponika Tara called it the quivering of the heart in response to other people's pain. I love that idea that one's heart quivers. You see the pictures of people digging Rubble in Marrakesh. I don't know them, and everybody that I knew that's in Morocco isn't there. But all those people are just like me. They just happen to be in Marrakesh when that happened. I think what would happen if that happened? You know, that it's a miracle that anybody gets through a life, a day, without a calamity, and it doesn't happen much. You know, it doesn't happen a lot. They they catch the attention because they're so unusual. But that's so unusual. Something happens. You're not. I don't think you get over it ever. It shapes your life. Afflictive emotions are greed and hatred, and negativity, and confusion, because they're the three uh, unskilled responses of the mind to what it is startled by the skilled response is an equanimity which can say things happen equanimity which is full of wisdom things happen sometimes to people that we know and love they just do you know if we wanted to loop it all the way around say things happen is the first noble truth, and we make it worse as a second noble truth by struggling with them, by wanting it to be by insisting that it be otherwise. It can't be otherwise. And that the um, the promise of practice is not that you'll won't have grief anymore or sadness. Well, loneliness or disappointment. It's that you, you will have them, but they'll pass. And you won't make them worse by believing that they shouldn't be happening. They are happening. Or believing that they're happening only to you. They're happening because they're always happening to everybody. I don't know who it was over the weekend that said um, "Probably on t- t- everything becomes dear when you realize that the whole thing is a miracle. I think I probably talked enough and that we should uh, sit for a while. Maybe we will sit for uh fifteen minutes if you need to for any reason get up and walk because it's not too long or whatever, we won't take a formal break <laughs> really, because I don't want to. <laughs> i really like for us to sit quietly, having talked about what is definitely, for me, the most important thing in the world to talk about. And I'm going to invite you, if you can, to sit and reflect on it. Use whatever time you need to take care of your biological needs and then come back. And we'll talk about all of this. Here we are, but I want to talk while we're heads are completely in this particular space. And I I asked you to write down one thing we were going to talk about. What was the one thing that I said, Carlita? That question, let me pull it back here. How did you feel when we did that wish everyone well exercise? How did you feel? So the number one, I'd like for us to talk about that. How did you feel when we did the uh, may I meet this moment fully, may I meet it as a friend exercise? And then uh, looking at individual people and then looking at everybody. That's question one to respond to. I also wanted to uh, ask you to, uh, I want to also to mention that this particular week in the Hebrew calendar is the last week of the year. In the Jewish calendar, it runs on a moon calendar. So uh, New Year's moves around a little bit. And uh, uh, a moon calendar is every 28 days, 20, 28, 29. And it might occur, if it occurs to you, to say, how do you account for the fact that uh, uh, it, why doesn't summer come out in the winter or something? How can we stay more or less in the same seasons? is that every four or five or six years, there's an extra month in the calendar to catch up with the moons. So it's as if we were to have every four or five or six years, instead of a leap year where you have an extra day in February. You have a a leap month where it's the equivalent of January, February, March, March, April. You just do a month over again. And so it kind of sets the clock back so you're in the right place with seasons. Uh, unless you're in the Southern Hemisphere and then the whole season of things doesn't work. But uh, that, that's... And it is coming up this very weekend, and one of the preparations that people are enjoined to do in the run-up to that is to reflect on where they find themselves in their, in terms of their heart and their work on being the kind of person that they'd like to be. That the 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 uh, the poem phrase is a phrase from a, a prayer a prayer book phrase. Uh, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, and with all oh, I, I forgot that John had an extra one from the Book of John. Actually, is uh, part of the Hebrew prayer book, and you say it several times a day. And if you look at people's houses who are uh, following Judaism, they have a uh, a little icon. On the doorposts of their house, and if you wondered ever what's in there, it's a little piece of scripture that says, "And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your all your soul, your all your might." And these words, which I command you these days, put them on the doorposts of your house. So that's how come that's there. And I used to think that would be if that was the only, uh, if that were the only thing that we said. There's just one commandment in Judaism. That's it. The commandment is to touch that icon as you go out the house and as you go in. And I thought that would be the only rule. I think it would cover everything because as you go out the door, the the rule is you affix it. And then as you go out the door, you have to touch it. And you touch it and you kiss it and then you go about your business. And when you come home, the same. And But you're not just touching and kissing. You have to think, do I love everyone equally with all my heart and soul and my that would be the commandment. And then if you thought to yourself, well, I don't forgive my brother-in-law or my my uncle from 50 years ago, then you have to stand there in the door until you can forgive them. And then you can go out and then when you come home and you're about to go in, you can't go in unless you forgive your coworker for being difficult to be with that day. I think you could do away with all the other rules about what to do if we just did that rule and we did it right. But Nobody so far has taken that up from <laughs> said, okay, let's do it Sylvia's way, but I think that's what it means. And I wanted to ask about what in your experience do you have a systematic way of doing an ex- examination of conscience? The monks have uh meet on the new moon or the full moon, I'm not sure, in every monk community and have a confession where they tell what. They feel where they feel they've missed the mark and announce it to the community and then presumably don't do it again. And I wondered if you wanted to talk about any, the, 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 the um, practice of confession and um, um, reconciliation and anything else that you wanted to talk about. And we have 25 minutes to talk